in the morning. In the morning. I feel so bad in the middle of the day. Yeah. I feel so bad in the evening. In the evening. That's why I'm going to the river to wash my sins away. I'm Sister Rosetta Tharp was an American singer, songwriter, guitarist, and a pioneer of mid-20th century music. She attained popularity in the 1930s and 40s with her gospel recordings, characterized by a unique mixture of spiritual lyrics and rhythmic accompaniment that was a precursor of rock and roll. She was the first great recording star of gospel music and among the first gospel musicians to appeal to rhythm and blues and rock and roll audiences, later being referred to as the original soul sister and the godmother of rock and roll. No, 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 She influenced rock and roll musicians including Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lee Lewis. When Johnny Cash gave his induction speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he referred to Sister Rosetta Tharp as his favorite singer when he would listen to her on the radio as a child. WHBQ, and they had a program on there called Red Hot and Blue late at night where they played back then what they called race music and... There I heard some of my my earliest heroes and it was at the home of the blues record shop where I bought my first recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp singing those great gospel songs. Willing to cross the line between sacred and secular by performing her music of light in the darkness of nightclubs and concert halls with big bands behind her, Sister Rosetta Tharp pushed spiritual music into the mainstream and helped pioneer the rise of pop gospel. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now It keeps the spirit moving in my soul Lottie Henry, a member of Tharp's backup vocal group, the Rosettes, remembers Sister Rosetta Tharp's talent. She could play a guitar like nobody else. Nobody. Joe Boyd, American record producer and writer who played a crucial role in the recording careers of Pink Floyd, R.E.M., and 10,000 Maniacs. I think Rosetta was a hugely important figure. Let's you know, she was really unique as a guitar player. She had a big influence on somebody like Chuck Berry, who was one of the most influential guitar players in the world. And here's Gordon Stoker from Elvis Presley's backing band, The Jordanaires. She did incredible picking. That's what really attracted Elvis was uh, her picking. And he liked her singing too, but he liked that picking first <laughs> uh, because it was so different. And here's Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer. She had a major impact on artists like Elvis Presley. When you see Elvis Presley singing um, early songs in his career, I think if you imagine that he is channeling Rosetta Tharp, it's not an image that I think we're used to thinking about when we think about rock and roll history. We don't think about the black woman behind the young white man. Sister Rosetta Tharp was born on March 20, 1950 in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, not far from the Mississippi River. 
Her parents, Katie Bell and Willis Atkins, were both cotton pickers. Here's biographer Gail Wald and Ira Tucker, friend of Sister Tharp and lead singer with the American gospel group The Dixie Hummingbirds, talking about the influence that Rosetta Tharp's parents had on her as a child. We don't know too much about Rosetta's father. What we do know about the father is that Willis Atkins could sing, and so it's possible that some of her gift of singing came from her father. Her mother um, was an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Her mother was incredibly passionate about the church. Rosetta's mother, Miss Katie Bell is what we called her, she was a very traditional person, and basically she was what what we called a stomp-down Christian. I mean, that's one that enjoyed stamping her feet and patting her hands and celebrating what she believes in. And the reason that I think that Rosetta really became such a strong woman was because of her mother. Because her mother, again, was the same type of person. She had no fear. She would take her guitar, she would take her tambourine, she would take her chair, and she would sit outside and play for people and try to convert them and to get them to go to church. In 1921, Katie Bell left Rosetta's father to become a traveling evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Taking six-year-old Rosetta, she left Cotton Plant, Arkansas and joined the exodus of poor black Southerners heading north. There was work in Chicago and even something more crucial for the young Rosetta. Migrants brought the blues from the Mississippi Delta and jazz from New Orleans. Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, and Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer, on this important time in Rosetta's life. Rosetta is often seen as a country singer, but that's a fallacy. Her major development occurred very early. She moved to Chicago when she was six. She and Mother Bell joined Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ, and the Chicago Sanctified Church was bubbling with musicians and new songs. And so she was exposed to something that was new. It was not rural. It was an urban kind of religious singing. It was at that church where she first really started performing, um, where she was the main attraction. There's a great story that has her being put when she's six years old on the top of the piano, um, holding a guitar, being put there so that she could be seen by the congregation and playing and singing and charming everyone with her talent and her precociousness. And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp, the godmother of rock and roll who influenced everyone from Elvis Presley to Johnny Cash and Chuck Berry. Wait a 
stick like glue Stick because I'm stuck on you This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Elvis Presley. Some people think he was the king of rock and roll. But Elvis Presley said that the real queen of rock and roll, the godmother of rock and roll, was Sister Rosetta Tharp. And we're listening to her story right now. Jesse's doing a great job, as always, on these music stories. I would urge you, if you get a moment, put in the words Sister Rosetta Tharp and Didn't It Rain on a YouTube search, and you will see something extraordinary. And everything we're talking about... You're going to see the way she held that Gibson SG, a white Gibson SG, as she comes off a carriage in Manchester by a train station in a white mink coat, gets in front of a small uh, ensemble. There are a bunch of white British kids waiting for this African-American lady in a white mink coat holding a white Gibson SG, doing the duck walk, all the moves that you'd see from Chuck Berry and Keith Richards. She created so many of them. But let's now return to the story of Sister Rosetta Tharp. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now It keeps the spirit moving in my soul Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp's early performances before her teenage years. There's something within me that just holding the rain she told me that when she was a girl, not even 10, she was immediately seen as an all-purpose musician. She'd go to a revival and she'd play her guitar. And if the people would get happy afterward and shout, she would drop the guitar and run to the piano and accompany them with her piano chords. And then she might get up and cut a couple of dance steps herself. She was a phenomenal showwoman. On life battlefield. Throughout her teenage years, Sister Rosetta Tharp was taken by her mother from city to city to perform in churches, tabernacles, and revival meetings, winning the hearts of thousands with her demure looks, angelic voice, and unique guitar style. She soon became a nationwide celebrity within the church, and this Philadelphia church is one of the first she performed in back in the 1930s, Church of God in Christ. Here's church parishioner Helen Henderson remembering Sister Rosetta Tharp. When I saw Rosetta, I was a, I was about maybe ten years old. Oh, she had she had the most beautiful voice and the way she could speak to you. It made you feel different. You knew something was going on, even if you didn't understand really what it was. And that's the way it was with me because I was a child. And here's the pastor of that church, Robert Hargrove. Many of the hymns were expression of suffering and wanting to survive, many of them. And when she came and they saw the expression of her, the freedom that she expressed in her singing and dancing, it woke up the congregation. It focused them on something that was on the inside that they never gave expression to. Rosetta would start looking up. She didn't look at anybody. She looked up as if she saw God. And it was as if God was in her and she was communing with him rather than with a human being. When Rosetta Tharp was 19 years old in 1934, her mother married her off to a preacher, the Reverend Tommy Tharp. For the next four years, she and Tommy worked for the church. Her job was to draw the crowds while he preached from the pulpit. But in spite of her mother's good intentions, the marriage was not working out. 
Here's Rosetta Tharp's best friend, Roxy Moore, remembering her old friend while sitting behind the keys at the piano. Look up! Look up! And see your maker before Gabriel. I met Sister Rosetta in the summer of 1937. She seemed a little bit glad that she was married, but she didn't seem to be very happy. And that's the reason I took to her. Because, you know, I wanted to just make her happy, make her feel as special as she really was. But I didn't have any idea that she and Tommy wouldn't make it. Ira Tucker, longtime friend of Sister Rosetta Tharp and lead singer for the Dixie Hummingbirds, remembers Rosetta's first husband a little differently. He was a tyrant. Um, From what my parents used to say and talk about, uh, he seemed to um, come out of the real, real sub-old school and believed in the kind of almost caveman-like attitude towards women. She was just a meal ticket. She was a performer and he used her to bring people to his churches and he would put her up to sing. And after a few years, she had enough and she said, you know what, I'm gonna leave all of it. And she made that big jump. Rosetta then left her husband and took her mother to New York. In a city full of nightclubs, Rosetta was soon noticed and offered a spot at the prestigious Cotton Club, singing to a white audience. Four, five, five. But the song she was given by the men in charge made no mention of God. The lyrics were about pleasing her man. Here again is Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker. It was like a bomb had dropped on gospel music when she flipped. It, it was like, what? You know, I can't believe she's... That's Sister Rosetta Tharp. She's not supposed to be singing that kind of music. Oh, she was criticized and ostracized. I mean, the church people just, you know, just thought that she had just gone way off. Actually, it was hurtful to a lot of people because they felt as though they had lost something. They had something and it was great, but now it's gone. And they they viewed it almost like a death. You know, Rosetta is, she's gone. She went over. She's in like another world. Having discovered that she loved God and nightclubs, Rosetta decided to sing gospel in church and join the secular world of show business at the same time. The offers began to pour in. She was wanted by all of the big bands of the day, and in October of 1938, she signed a contract with Decca Records. Sister Tharp was also beginning to stir controversy. Here's record producer Anthony Halebutt on what was happening at the time. Her first hit was a song called Rock Me. And the the lyric is, Jesus, hear me praying. She sang, won't you hear me praying? 
So but when she came to the chorus, when she sang, rock me, and growled, rock, it sounded really, to many people, like uh, an invitation, and not to the altar. And here's biographer Gail Wald talking about this part of Sister Rosetta's life. Recording the song in that particular way marked her as someone who was having the nerve to reinterpret a spiritual song for a secular audience. I think there was also a piece of her that was just rebellious. She does some very risque material with Lucky Millinder, most notably a song called Tall Skinny Papa, which was a big hit for Millinder's band, and she was the lead singer on that. And she sings, I want a tall skinny papa. There's no way of <laughs> misinterpreting I want a tall skinny papa for anything that has to do with um, spirituality. Roxy Moore also remembers that song all too well. The next thing I heard was this recording out a Rosetta with the tall, skinny papa. So I said, it can't be Rosetta. So I went and bought the record. And after I listened to it, I said, oh my goodness, sister's out there singing that stuff. So when I, I saw her, I said, sister, I heard you tell Lucky Miller that you weren't going to sing that stuff. She said, when I saw that contract, he had a clause in there that I had to sing whatever he gave me to sing. She said, and I didn't know it. And I had a seven-year contract with him. She said, and I had to do it. I have a question to ask you. Want you to tell me if you can. I want somebody to tell me just what is the soul of man. Following the controversy with Tall Skinny Papa, Rosetta resolved to stick with the songs she knew best. Gospel songs. Her loyal followers back in the church got over the shock and stayed with her while she gained new fans that loved her music. This wasn't easy to pull off, but somehow, she did it. By the age of 25, Sister Rosetta Tharp was rated among the finest popular musicians of the day. In less than five years, she had established herself in a male-dominated industry, singing the songs she chose to sing in her own distinctive way. She was now rich, famous, and officially gospel music's first superstar. And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. This is Our American Stories, and now our final segment on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. In a highly segregated society, black and white musicians performing together back then was considered highly taboo. However, Sister Rosetta Tharp was more than happy to defy convention. Are we here, church? People say they are in this holy way. There are strange things happening every day. Gordon Stoker, from a band called the Jordanaires, remembers one such act of defiance. She was more or less a pioneer in asking us to even perform with her. She called us her four little white babies. 
And I thought it was so cute that, you know, that she referred to us as that, as, as that way. I thought that was just something I'll never forget. And we just loved to sing with her because when she started snapping her finger, man, and started singing on a tune, you couldn't help but sing. I know the first time we worked with her, they, they booked us. We went, to the, we went to the stage door, and some man came to the door, and, uh, and we, one of us said, well, we are, we are the Jordanaires. And he said, hmm, you, you are the Jordanaires? Well, he said, this is going to be a surprise to our audience. Sister Rosetta didn't tell him that we were white. <laughs> she booked us, but she didn't tell him we were white. And it, it, when we first went out on the stage, they didn't really know how to take us, but then we started singing, working on the building. But then on then we were in. By the age of 30, Rosetta had survived two brief and unhappy marriages. In 1951, Sister Rosetta Tharp invited 25,000 people to her next wedding to her manager, Russell Morrison, followed by a vocal performance at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. This was a massive publicity stunt. They would sell tickets to her fans and the recording rights to Decca Records. Here's biographer Gail Wald. So she records uh, her wedding ceremony and a concert that follows it in 1951. 25,000 people come out and pay admission prices to attend her wedding. They bring wedding gifts for her. They bring crystal. They bring um, dishes for her. Someone even buys her a television set. It's a total showbiz move. And at the same time, it's a, it's a wedding ceremony um, conducted by a minister, a real wedding ceremony. Despite criticism from her friends for marrying her own manager, Sister Rosetta Tharp remained married to Russell for the next 22 years. Meanwhile, back in the Mississippi Delta region, young white musicians were just beginning to discover the raw energy and complex rhythms of African-American gospel. George Klein, a friend of Elvis Presley's, describes the scene. There was a hip thing happening in Memphis at that time. There was a little church, and it was cool. It was a cool thing to do on Sunday nights only. You would go there, and there would be Elvis and some of the other guys from the area. And it was unusual because back in those days, white people had to sit in the back, and it was roped off. And we would sit back there, and we would watch these black spiritual singers sing on Sunday night. The thing that gospel spiritual music brought to popular music was feeling. Gospel spiritual music put the guts and the feeling and the real soul into it. And uh, people like Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lewis and Carl Perkins and those guys, Buddy Holly, if you will, they saw that and they adapted to that. And that really was the essence of rock and roll. Thinking about it, Sister Rosetta Tharp, she had this great feeling and that's what Elvis was looking for, feeling, because that's what was that's where it all came from. By the early 60s, Sister Rosetta Tharp's influence was continuing to spread as yet another generation fell under her spell. Here's a recording of the one and only Bob Dylan talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp on the radio. Sister Rosetta Tharp was anything but ordinary and plain. She was a big, good-looking woman and divine, not to mention sublime and splendid. She was a powerful force of nature. A guitar playing singing evangelist. It's a clean train. 
You know, she traveled to England with Muddy Waters and a whole bunch of other blues performers in the early 60s. And I'm sure there are a lot of young English guys who picked up an electric guitar after getting a look at her. In the summer of 1964, Sister Rosetta Tharp was booked to perform in a British gospel television music special. The musicians were all American, the audience, English students. The venue, an old railway station just outside Manchester, England. Joe Boyd, the tour manager of the 1964 folk, blues, and gospel caravan, remembers that performance. The Manchester gig was a curiosity in the middle of the tour for us. It was kind of bizarre, but you know, we were all new to England and we were aware of all this interest in blues and gospel. We all thought it was strange, the setup with the audience on one platform and the musicians on the other. And... <laughs> And she rose to the occasion. She loved the drama of the situation and trying to bridge that gap between the platforms and sell the whole thing across the, the track to the audience. By now, Sister Rosetta Tharp was 49 years old and she had been touring on the road for 40 of those years. But even in cold, wet, windy England, the magic was still there. As she arrived on a horse-drawn carriage, walked to the stage, strapped on a white Gibson SG, and began to sing, Didn't It Rain? Didn't it rain, children? Rain, oh, yes. Didn't it? Yes, didn't it? You know it didn't, didn't it? Oh, oh, yes, how it rained. While Rosetta was away in Europe, her mother was becoming increasingly frail. In 1968, Katie Bell died. For 53 years, she had stuck close to her daughter, through good times and bad, and the one constant figure reminding Rosetta of her faith in God. The loss took a heavy, heavy toll on Rosetta. She became increasingly depressed, and to make matters worse, she was diagnosed with diabetes. There is a divine power. I believe it. I don't know about you, but I got to believe it, because I was raised that way. I sing this song. Made in 1970 in Denmark, this is the last known recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp performing. Just Lord, take my hand, lead me on, and let me stand. I'm tired, you know, work so hard, and I'm weak. My body is warm. Rosetta's friend, Roxy Moore, noticed a black spot on Rosetta's foot one day and told her to have it checked out by a doctor. Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker described what happened next. Through the storm. She wouldn't listen to anybody. So the next thing, foot started turning black. Then she did have to go to the doctor. Then they found out they had to cut a leg off. Just the same. Sometimes she would call me and say, Sister, please come. Please come to see me. And I would say, all right, I'm coming. But the last few months I didn't go because, you know, Russell was acting like he didn't want nobody taking over from him. When I went over to see her and said she was in the bed and she was... 
And she, she would say, where's Russell? I'd say, downstairs. And she would say, he's asking you about shows, right? And I'd say, no, he didn't say anything. He said, yes, he is. He, he wants to know if I'm going back. She said, and I'm going back. But I'm not going to tell anybody when I'm coming back. But I am coming back. But she never did. On October 9th, 1973, the eve of a scheduled recording session, Sister Rosetta Tharp passed away in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as a result of a stroke. She was buried in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. In 2008, some 35 years after Rosetta's death, the governor of Pennsylvania declared that the 11th of January will be known as Sister Rosetta Tharp Day. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Didn't it rain, children? And great job, as always, Jesse. This is Our American Stories. I'm going to run, make a run to the hardware store. I need a new screen for my old screen door. Washers and screws and nails by the pound. You can't find it there. Can't be found. This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard right here on Our American Stories. Most everyone owns at least one screwdriver, but Canadians likely own a screwdriver that few outside Canada would recognize. The differing fates of the Robertson and the Phillips head screwdrivers demonstrates that innovation is intimately tied to historical events. Here's the history guy with the story of the screwdriver wars. The idea of the screw that is an incline plane that spirals around a central shaft is ancient. The earliest known uses were a water pump that might have been invented in Syria to irrigate the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, in the first millennium BC. But screws were not used as fasteners like we use them today. Without industrial methods, they simply would have been far too expensive to make. A number of other methods, including dovetails and dowels, were used in fastening, as well as, of course, the much more easily produced nail. Screws as fasteners were not apparently produced until around the 15th century. Nearly as no mention is in a late 15th century manuscript. Their initial use was as a fastener for parts of medieval jousting armor and, in nearly the same period, for early firearms. The earliest screwdrivers were built to service these weapons, and they were called either a screw turner or a turn screw, and they had a pear-shaped wooden handle, and otherwise looked a lot like a modern flat-headed screwdriver. But these screws and screwdrivers would have been custom-made and used on very expensive devices like wheel locks and jousting armor, and so screws were not for the common folk. In 1760, brothers Job and William Wyatt of Staffordshire patented a screw-making machine that used a file to cut in the threads following the pitch of a lead screw. This allowed mass production of screws and was a precursor to industrial mass production machines. The idea of using a, a lathe of some sort to cut threads was variously improved upon until the process for cold rolling threads was perfected in the 1880s. But virtually all of these screws used just a few turning methods, either a hexagon or square that was turned externally, or a flat slot cut to turn internally. And as anyone who has ever used one knows, flat-headed screws and screwdrivers have their problems. But solutions were on the horizon. Peter L. Robertson was born in Haldimand County, Ontario, Canada in 1879. 
tinkerer, Robertson produced a number of inventions, including a new design for cufflinks and even a better mousetrap. In 1905, he received a patent in Canada for a new design of a corkscrew that centered itself on the bottle. Around the turn of the century, Robertson was working through eastern Canada as what was called a high-pitch man, meaning a traveling salesman for a Philadelphia tool company. High-pitch men would sell their wares, say, on a street corner at a county fair, calling out their wares. And Among the things that he was selling was a device of his own design, Robert's 20th century wrench brace. It was a multi-tool that could be used as a monkey wrench, as a brace, as a bench vise, as a screwdriver. While demonstrating the screwdriver, which was flat-bladed, the blade slipped and seriously cut his hand. That gave him the idea of a new type of screwdriver head that was less likely to slip or cam out. In 1875, Alan Cummings of New York City had been granted a patent for a screw that used a cavity, either a square or triangle, rather than a slot, to address the same problem. Cummings' description noted, It is well known that the ordinary screw head provided with a slot is very susceptible to injury, caused mainly by the slipping of the screwdriver from the slot when the screw is being set home in wood or metal. By omitting the usual slot and using the proper shaped cavity and screwdriver, perfect safety is ensured to the metallic cap. But Cummings' design had a flaw. The way that you made the cavity that the screwdriver fit into was by stamping it with a die, and stamping it deeply enough that the screwdriver would set inside it would deform or weaken the screw head. Robertson had a better solution, for which he applied for a patent in 1907. His screw tapered the sides of the square gradually down to a pyramid shape. This not only prevented the head from being deformed, but actually helped align the metal grain, as he explained, knitting the atoms together for greater strength. It had the added advantage of less waste, since the slot of a slot-headed screw was usually cut out, losing a bit of metal and weakening the head of the screw. Because it was less likely to cam out, you could use more torque with the Robertson screw and driver. As it was self-centering, it could be used with one hand, whereas a slotted screwdriver usually required two. The head of the screw was less likely to deform, and the Robertson screwdriver was much better able to still remove the screw if it did. It also worked better than a slotted screw if the screw had been painted over. Robertson's screw and driver were particularly attractive to furniture makers and boat builders, where it was more of a problem if a flathead screw camped out because it would damage the material around it, damage the value of the product. But perhaps best of all is that Robertson's screw could be cold formed. That is, because the stamp tapered down inside the screw, that meant that you could build the screw without ever having to heat the metal. Cummings' design, as ingenious as it was, probably was never made during its patent life because the screw simply couldn't be easily manufactured. But Robertson's design could be cheaply manufactured in the millions. Calling his invention the biggest little invention of the 20th century so far, Robertson gained enough investors to open the P.L. Robertson Manufacturing Company Limited in 1908. He built a factory in Milton, Ontario, which gave him tax breaks and a $10,000 loan. The patent was approved February 1909, and by then the company was already filling orders. Robertson was just 30 years old. While the Robertson Company described the initial years as hard, with local competitors even challenging their patent, the Robertson screw slowly gained adherence among boat builders and furniture makers. In 1913, Fisher Auto Body opened a factory in Walkerville, Ontario, making wooden parts for the Ford Model T. The Robertson screw offered a great advantage for manufacturing, and Fisher became one of Robertson's largest customers, using some 700 screws per body. Robertson later designed a screw for metal to use on the all-metal body of the Ford Model A. 
having been awarded international patents, Robertson saw the opportunity to expand abroad, and so he went to Gillingham, England and established a company called the Recess Screw Company. He marketed to British industry using the slogan, the screw that grips the driver. But his real plan was to manufacture screws in England but sell them in Germany and Russia, and the First World War and the Russian Revolution foiled his plan. Recess screws turned to war production during the Great War and produced things like firing needles and hand grenade pins, but after the war, recess screws failed. There seems to have been several factors involved, including a glut of supply following the war and the actions of some unscrupulous investors, but Robertson resigned as the director of the company. But the company in Canada was still doing well, and Robertson looked to expand into the United States. Then Henry Ford came to the table. An analysis had shown that the use of Robertson screws in the Ford plants in Canada had saved $2.60 a car, a significant savings for a car that retailed for only $390 and which was being produced in the millions. Ford wanted to use Robertson screws in all his U.S. plants. But Ford wanted to stay in production and an exclusive contract, and Robertson stubbornly refused to give up that control. When the deal fell through, Robertson not only did not get the contract for the American Ford plants, but lost the contracts in Canada, almost a third of his business. After three failed tries, Robertson decided to never try to license his screws outside of Canada again, but his marketing skills made his screws and drivers the screwdrivers of choice in Canada, even though just across the border of the United States, they're hardly known at all. But Ford was still using flat screws, which are even more troublesome on automated assembly lines, where if a screw cammed out, it cost time and slowed manufacturing. The solution started with a patent application in 1932 by John P. Thompson, an auto mechanic living in Portland, Oregon. Thompson's solution was similar to Robertson's. By tapering the screw head, a star die could be used without distorting the metal. And again, stamping the tapered design made the metal actually stronger. In 1933, when the patent was granted, Thompson assigned it to Henry Frank Phillips. Like Robertson, Henry Phillips had been a traveling salesman. By the time the patent was assigned to him, he was the managing director of a mining concern, the Oregon Copper Company. It's not really clear why Thompson assigned the patent to Phillips, but Phillips refined the design and was granted more patents. Unlike Robertson, Phillips did not intend to manufacture screws, but hoped to license the patents to manufacture and collect royalties. Not surprisingly, with new invention, Phillips got a lot of rejections from companies who told him the idea lacked promise for commercial success. But eventually, Phillips convinced Eugene E. Clark of the American Screw Company of Providence, Rhode Island to manufacture the design. By 1934, the screw was available for consumers. In 1936, General Motors was invited to test the design. The Phillips head screw first went into use at GM, making the 1936 Cadillac. Customers raved about the amount of work time saved. Within just a few years, virtually all U.S. automakers, including Ford, were using Phillips head screws. The airplane manufacturing and railroad industry likewise switched. By 1939, 20 companies had licenses to produce Phillips head screws. By 1940, 85% of U.S. screw manufacturers had a license for the design, and the company grossed more than 1.3 million adjusted dollars. While the Second World War limited foreign licenses, it established the Phillips head screw as an industry standard among wartime manufacturers. The hundreds of thousands of planes and motor vehicles built by the U.S. during the war were largely screwed together using Phillips head screws. While Robertson had Canada, Phillips screws are, by industry estimates, by far the most popular type of screw everywhere else in the world. The Robertson and Phillips screws were the culmination of the development of screw technology over a couple of hundred years, and they were two types that rose to the top in an era where there was a lot of innovation in the field.
It's really ironic that the events of the First World War were part of the reason that the Robertson screw was never developed internationally, whereas events of the Second World War were the reason that the Phillips headed screw was. And the relative fates between the two say that invention isn't about just the inspiration and, uh, pun intended, drive of the inventor, but of a complex interaction with historical forces and powerful personalities. Things that can impact every tool in the toolbox. And you've been listening to The History Guy. If you want more stories of forgotten history, please subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy, colon, History Deserves to be Remembered. And by the way, now we all know where the name Phillips and Phillips head screwdrivers come from. And if I have a choice between a flathead screw and a Phillips head, I know all about that flathead screw turning into a mess and a cut. What a great invention. What an interesting story. The story of the screwdriver war here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And on this day in history in 1920, an American legend was born. Our own Alex Cortez brings us a celebration of his extraordinary life. In the ongoing story of America's economic and business history, it happens again and again. One person with imagination and nerve gets an idea and develops into an industry and then into part of American life. And one man thought that every American should have television. Believe it or not, not too long ago, many outside of the largest cities didn't. They couldn't. In 1952, the year the Corvette came to life and David Hasselhoff was born, hills and mountains would get in the way of households in rural areas and small towns receiving the signals of what's called broadcast television, ABC, NBC, and the only handful of channels that existed then, which was TV rich, but is TV poor compared to today. Now imagine you have zero video products in your life, and that was the life of Bill Daniels until he said enough for all of us. Well, there's got to be a way that you can get television to small towns. I don't know what that way is, but there's got to be a way. That way? Cable TV. Antennas in our local areas that pick up television signals and then send them through long cables to each one of our homes. A lot of the public take it for granted because they were raised on it. Uh, I was not. It hit me. Uh, at the age of 32, and I thought, holy mackerel. Every community in America today gets as much or more television than New York, Chicago, or San Francisco, and ain't that something. Daniels also thought that it could bring everyone, even the supposedly TV-rich city slickers, more than the five to eight network and local channels that they had with programming that was endless. You ain't seen nothing yet. You'll say the day you have 100, 200 channel choice of programming. Uh, some of the people say I wouldn't know what to choose if I had that many channels, but uh, God, it's just getting started. 
this vision and his dogged pursuit of it led him to be known by another name. The father of cable television. A man who's called the father of cable television. He was tagged with the title of father of the cable television industry. I think he basically was the dad that said, come on, guys, here's where we're going and we're going to get there. I've been in the cable business for 40 years. A lot of people call me the father of cable television. I guess that's because I'm so damn old, but... Uh... <laughs> We have in our company, believe it or not, over the years, probably owned and operated more systems than anybody in the country. But growing up, Bill didn't have more of anything. We were a poor family. My dad sold life insurance to farmers during the Depression. Now that's tough, friends. <laughs> and let me tell you, hungry, no clothes. If you were, went through the Depression, it was a real incentive to a lot of us to say, God damn, someday I'm going to do something about this. I'll never forget that I said to my dad once when I was 10 years old, I said, Dad, when we grow up and get rich, can I have a little Henry bar? <laughs> uh, I can remember my dad taking their four children in our family down to have an ice cream cone. And that was a big deal to us. It was a nickel. And I was sitting next to my dad, and I said, can I have two? He belted me <laughs> to try to teach me that I'd be lucky to have one. I graduated from my Navy fighter pilot training two weeks after Pearl Harbor, and it wasn't planned that way. People say to me, you know, you were a hero, you volunteered, you knew we were going to have a war. Baloney. I had no idea that was going to happen. My timing was bad in that case, so uh, I ended up... Uh, See a lot of action in World War II, and I think I'm like, like a lot of guys, uh, it rubbed off on me that I was going to be glad to get out of there alive. I was going to work hard and count my blessings every day that I was still walking around. And that's exactly what he did back at home and working in the family insurance business. If your ambition is to make money and to get a good job, I can't emphasize enough the way you handle yourself, how important it is. And regardless of where you are. When I first got out of the Navy, my dad had an oil insurance business. And we're a little town in New Mexico. Hobbs, New Mexico. You haven't lived till you've been there. <laughs> and I was a notary public. How do you like that? And every time I signed my name to a piece of paper, I got a quarter. A guy walked in almost one day with khaki clothes on, and he had 20 documents he wanted notarized. I notarized every one of them. He said, what are you? Now, 20 times 25, I think that had been five bucks that I made. And I said, nothing, sir. Hey, we're happy to have you in our city. Come back any time. Let me know what I can do for you. Thank you. Appreciate that. A guy walks in office about three years later, three-piece suit, and he, by that time, owned seven drilling rigs, and he laid the insurance account on my lap and said, I want you to write the insurance on this. And over a two-year period of time, my brother and I, my dad had died in the meantime, about $600,000 in insurance premiums into our little company. What's the point of the story? I said to the guy, why are you giving me the business? He said, I came in here three years ago, 
and you notarized some papers for me and you didn't charge me and you couldn't have been nicer and more polite. You never know. You never know. And what a good lesson to learn about almost anything in life. And it's sometimes you're helping somebody who will one day help you, but that's not why you did it. And when we come back, we're going to learn so much more about the unlikely father of cable television, Bill Daniels. And by the way, in World War II, this Navy fighter pilot fought at Midway, Guadalcanal, and the invasion of the Philippines. He saw real action. And by the way, he was called back to duty for the Korean War II. When we come back, this remarkable American story, Bill Daniels' story, here on Our American Story. we continue here with our American stories and with the story of the unlikely father of cable television, Bill Daniels. Let's continue the story. In 1952, Daniels was driving from New Mexico to Wyoming, where he was starting an insurance business. And when he stopped in a Denver bar for a meal, he saw something that he had never seen before. I was 32 before I ever saw television. I saw it in Denver in a bar prize fight and I happened to be a prize fight fan and uh, when I first looked at it I thought what an invention that is picture and sound into a home at the same time I couldn't get over that and my reaction was wow that is some invention and I look forward to seeing more television when I get to Capitol Wyoming but he got there and there was no television I thought there's got to be a way that you can get television to small towns. I don't know what that way is, but there's got to be a way. So I went to work on the project and got it done. Being the first to use microwave technology to relay a broadcast signal. And according to his colleague Gene Schneider, those early days were precarious. We were taking in $1,500 a month, and we were spending about 15000 But the Casper Cable system they built soon won the business of 4,000 subscribers, one-third of the area's homes. I was the president of our National Cable Television Association, the second president, and there were about 500 systems in the country. And I had people call me saying they either wanted to buy a cable system or sell one. And I'd put buyers and sell it together. Would not take a fee because I didn't think I could because... In my view, I was president of the National Trade Association. I didn't think it was proper. No. Students, there's integrity. But a light went up over my head. And I said, there's a business here. I think it can be a hell of a business. And it did become a hell of a business. Here's the later president of Daniels and Associates, John Seaman. He was the only one doing that. You know, this was too small for Wall Street. So it was primarily Bill and his persona that were 
causing whatever few deals were being made to happen. But that doesn't mean that things were easy. They weren't. Here's John on telling his employer that he was leaving to work for Bill and the credit report that they ran on him. It was horrible. I mean, it was just horrible. <laughs> the, the debts way exceeded. So Bill's lying about, they tell me I'm a millionaire, was purely part of the hype and the persona that he had created anything but true. But yet he had made such an impression on me that it didn't matter. I thought, here is a true leader in an industry. Whether I know, I didn't know much about the industry. I didn't know its potential. I didn't have its vision, but this guy did. And I thought, I'm gonna be way better off hitching my wagon to him than I am staying where I am. So the fear of this guy is in danger of not being able to pay his bills for whatever reason as a young guy with a family didn't have a negative effect on me. But those were very difficult times. Every two weeks was a payroll challenge. The business was very unpredictable. The brokerage side of the business was feast or famine. You could work a long time on a transaction and it wouldn't close. So you'd have a lot of travel and other expenses associated with trying to get the engagement and complete it. And at the end of the day, you could end up with nothing in the basket. Here's Bill on a secret sauce for taking on these challenges. Just to, uh, to give you my credentials, uh, you're looking at a guy who has very little formal education. I have never had an IQ test, so I don't even know what my IQ is. I'm afraid to take it, by the way. And I never thought I was very smart, and I still don't. My business career has been successful because I've hired good people. And I know my faults. And as you go through your practice in business, the sooner you recognize that your weak points and cover those positions with competent people, the better off you'll be, believe me. Bill survived and thrived, but his competition in network and local TV were used to having no competition and tried to use the force of government to make he and Cable goners. We went along for about five years, and uh, we weren't a very exciting business, but we had a monopoly. And we uh, provided something the public wanted at a fair price. After about five years, we served about two million subscribers nationwide. Today, we serve almost 60% of the homes in the country. But let me list for you the people after five years thought that we were a threat to them and the enemies that we had in the cable television business. How's this for a lineup? ABC, CBS, NBC, AT&T, local television stations, the Federal Communications Commission, the Congress, including both the House and the Senate, all the lawyers in Washington, D.C., the represented broadcasters, most city governments, most county governments, and most state governments. Now that's pretty tough, isn't it? <laughs> My attitude at that time, I was about 30, 233 along in there. Well, now wait a minute. 
if all of these people are busting their ass to stop our business from succeeding, you know, we must have some. <laughs> if we didn't, then they could care less about us, right? He often wrote letters to congressmen and others about pending regulations and say things like, I didn't go off to fight a battle in the Pacific to fight for the country's freedoms, to have you throw in a bunch of regulations that make it impossible for me to do business. He had great intuition. He looked at every opponent as an opponent that we could ultimately win over as opposed to one that we had to destroy. And I think that was a unique characteristic about Bill. He, in, in the very early days when the cable industry was fighting its big battles with broadcasters, Bill regularly read Broadcasting Magazine. He regularly communicated with people who were accomplished and recognized in Broadcasting Magazine. Bill, even though the broadcasting industry were basically our enemies trying to do us harm, Bill would take that picture from Broadcasting Magazine, have it mounted on a plaque, shellacked with the guy or gal's name on the bottom of it, the date of the publication, and he'd send him a note. Congratulations. Didn't make any difference whether this guy was president of NBC or, you know, an engineer in Sacramento. If they were on that back page, Bill was going to send them a note and they were going to get a plaque. So Bill was engaging the enemy while many were trying to destroy the enemy and they were trying to destroy us. As a result, I think Bill had an entree that made it very possible for us later on to play a big role in bringing broadcasters, newspaper organizations into the ownership of the cable industry and come into the tent as opposed to be outside as our enemy. To put it mildly, Bill's Big Tent won. Here's NBC. And Daniels, the perfect marriage broker, the man who did much to connect a nation from Nebraska farmhouses to Park Avenue penthouses. Two-thirds of American homes now are wired for cable. Here's Bill with his colleagues at Daniels & Associates. To all of you who have made this company such a success, I really appreciate it. A company is people. People make the company. I don't make it. The product doesn't make it. The people make it. And I just want you to know I'm awful damn proud of all of you. And you've been listening to the voice of Bill Daniels. And my goodness, so many Americans got to enjoy television across this great country because of cable and now are enjoying internet services. And my goodness, the type and quantity of content that Bill probably couldn't have imagined even in the year 2000. It's been so remarkable what's happened in the area of content and content delivery in this country. And when we come back, we'll continue with more of the story of Bill Daniels. And my goodness, him saying a company is people is so true. And a man with great intuition and great integrity knew that his greatest decisions were in the people he chose and how he took care of them. When we continue more of the life of the father of cable television, Bill Daniels, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of Bill Daniels, who brought the wonderful world of cable television, well, to all of us, and was richly rewarded for doing so. Let's return to his story. I guess it's kind of like if you go to heaven, you'd believe in there's religion on earth. (laughs) And I've been so lucky and so successful that I have to be a champion, I guess, of the free enterprise system. Uh, But I've studied other governments. You know, I've been to Russia. Uh, If all people in this country have to do is go to a foreign country that is either socialistic or a dictatorship or communistic, and then you really appreciate the free enterprise system. You live in a marvelous country. I've said many times, the eighth wonder of the world is a free enterprise system. And the ninth wonder of the world is so few people understand it. Here's John Seaman. So Bill loved the business of business. He loved being an entrepreneur. And he loved the free enterprise system that enabled entrepreneurship to be successful. While entrepreneurs are in vogue today, 30 years ago, not so much so. But since you're in this class, let me name a few early entrepreneurs. Henry Ford went busted a couple times. Walt Disney went broke before he got going. Arm and Hammer bought an oil company for a tax shelter. And what happened? They discovered oil. King Gillette. King Gillette invested invented the Gillette Razor. The first year he sold 57 razors. But an entrepreneur. And God love him, the entrepreneur of all time, Ray Kroc. Good friend of mine made a statement that I dearly love. He was so motivated and so ambitious. And somebody said to him one day, Ray, the country is becoming too saturated with McDonald's. He says, my Saturation is for sponges. <laughs> I had no money as a kid. I didn't have any money when I started. And uh, I don't think money is everything. But by the same token, I think my biggest, uh, my biggest accomplishment is my success in my business. And I hope that I can continue to share my good fortune with others. To quote that, uh, that I've used so many times, they don't have luggage rack on hearses. You can't take it with you. And uh, while I'm alive, I want to have some fun with my giving. And uh, it's fun to pick your charities while you're still kicking and uh, can watch people uh, enjoy and share with me my good fortune. Here's the former president of Daniels & Associates, Tom Marinkovich. Bill was one to give people second chances, and there's a lot of uh, examples of that. The ones I keep running into uh, and, and remembering really was all the young people that he put through colleges and that he gave jobs to. And he did this off the cuff. Whenever Bill saw an opportunity to help someone who deserved an opportunity but didn't have one, this wasn't a formal scholarship program at all. And that led to some interesting problems. In fact, at times that presented me a problem because I was trying to get the budgets organized and I've had to be a little tough on people about adding people and all of a sudden Bill would come in with two or three new young people and he wouldn't take no for an answer and uh, 
he ultimately helped those young people and he checked on them and he made sure they were responsible for their academics and their job performance after they came aboard. After Bill passed away, he left $1 billion to his foundation, the Daniels Fund, which has already given away nearly a billion. And one of their signature programs is a more formal scholarship program. Here's John Seaman speaking before the new class of Daniels scholars in 2017. I'm told over 2,000 applied for the Daniels scholarship this year. 482 made it to the interview process. 235 were awarded Daniel Scholars. Just a reflection on cost of education today and the value of this scholarship. Depending on the school and other factors, four years of college today is going to cost approximately $150,000. If you finance that amount based on the federal student loan rate, you would be paying back 1000 a month for 30 years. So as I look out on those of you who are here tonight with these scholarships, I say congratulations because you've won the lottery. However, what you've done is better than the lottery, and the reason is because the lottery is strictly blind luck. You, on the other hand, because of the characteristics that are defined by the Daniels Scholarship Program, through your character, leadership, and community service, you came by your scholarship honestly. Congratulations to all of you. Here's Bill on his experience that inspired another extracurricular activity. I got to tell you, folks, I've been thrown out of more banks than anybody in the world. <laughs> My first visit to a bank was after World War II, and I was 25, and I had never been in a bank. I wanted to buy a car, and my first visit to the bank, I felt like I was either going in for brain surgery or the defendant in a murder trial. Banks are intimidating. Wouldn't it be nice when a young person is 20 years old and just graduated from college or 21 and already have good credit on his own? Well, why not give them an opportunity at a young age to learn more on how to deal with a bank? Bill's idea was to create a bank that's only for young Americans. But that meant getting the approval of government regulators. It sounds like a simple, wonderful idea. By tomorrow morning, if we all got our heads together, we ought to be able to have a bank up and running. But it didn't work that way, and it seemed like every step that Bill took ended up being a no. But for many of us that know Bill well, no many times is looked at as a sign of encouragement to Bill. <laughs> So I think, they, I think they like us. So in any event, the bank opened with great fanfare. Here's Linda Childers, the founding president of Young Americans Bank, on the over 91,000 accounts that have been opened. Bill would just be so proud of that. He would just get tickled. He would come into the bank lobby and just kind of sit in the back of the bank and watch kids do their business, and it was such a kick to him to see this and especially if they wanted to start a business 
you know, he really loved to hear about their business, their business plans, and how he could be helpful to them. And we've been listening to the story of Bill Daniels. And Bill's foundation, the Daniels Fund, is sponsoring this great story as part of their celebration of his 100th birthday this year and the 20th anniversary of the foundation. They focus on Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, the four states that most affected Bill's life. And in addition to the Daniels Scholars and Young Americans Bank that you heard about, the foundation makes grants to nonprofits in areas like ethics, youth development, education reform, addiction, and amateur sports. And you can learn more about their work at danielsfund.org. And while there, also pick up an incredibly beautiful book on Bill's life that has so much more to offer on this profoundly American story. And my goodness, that Bill Daniels created all these jobs, got TV into the houses and homes of people across this country, not just the people in the big cities, but doing what Sam Walton did, too, because Sam Walton was able to bring lower prices to people on every variety of product and service uh, through Walmart, and we brought you his terrific story. And this only free enterprise can do. It is truly the eighth wonder of the world, as Bill said, and it has lifted so many people out of poverty and given us all the goods, products, services, and innovation that only free enterprise can drive and deliver. When we come back, more of the life of this incredible American story, more about Bill Daniels and his life story here on Our American Story. And we continue with the final portion of Bill Daniels' extraordinary life story. In the 1980s and 90s, Bill gave over $22 million to what became the Daniels College of Business at the University of Denver. And he insisted that ethics and etiquette be a mandatory part of the curriculum. The reason I did is uh, first you got, all you got to do is read the Wall Street Journal every morning. And you'll see what's going on in some of the higher financial circles of our country. Uh, this, and that disturbs me. And the second reason is I've been fortunate and I've interviewed probably 100 young men and women in this company who are MBAs and I've been amazed that while they have technical skills, they're well educated technically, what little they know about what goes on in the real world. I have a great nephew that graduated from Harvard Business School uh, about three years ago now in my employ, and I asked him one day if at the Harvard Business School if there were any courses on ethics and integrity. No. I then checked with Stanford University. No. I then checked with the other hotshot schools, Dartmouth, Yale, and I think uh, Wharton, I'm not sure else. None of them offered a course in ethics and integrity. And the Daniels Fund has since expanded Bill's ethics initiative and are partnering with more business schools, law schools, high schools, police departments across the country, and an online case bank that anyone can access, reaching a total of more than one million Americans so far. With heavy emphasis on ethics, integrity, manners, 
communicating with people, answering your phone, answering your mail, treating everybody in your company with decency, treating your fellow man with decency, giving back to your community. Now that's a pretty big order. And Bill just didn't talk a big game. He lived it. And even when he had nothing to his name, here's the president of the Daniels Fund, Linda Childers. So after Bill returned from the military, he moved to the state of Wyoming and started working in the insurance business. And he sold a policy to a warehouse owner. And Bill was proud of himself. It was a great, a great deal. And went on down the road. And I think it was about a year later, there was an accident at the warehouse and someone was killed. And they filed the claim, and Bill was horrified to find out that the reinsurance company had declared bankruptcy. And he felt that his integrity was on the line because he'd sold that policy. But there was nothing to be paid from the insurance company. So Bill Daniels, as a young worker, paid that claim himself. The claim was $12,000. Bill paid that $500 a month by juggling his finances to make that work. It was more than he made, but it was important to him that his word was as good as gold. He was going to make that straight because he was then square with himself. That's who he was, and that's what mattered to him and his reputation. And I think with Bill, it, it wasn't that he said, I'm going to be honest and, and I'm going to do these things here because it's going to have long-term payoff. I think when he was a young man, he just did it because it was the right thing. And somewhere along the line, he said, wow, this is working pretty well for me. My reputation really does matter in the cable business. I had to take bankruptcy with a basketball team that I owned in the state of Utah. It was the Utah Stars. We were the league champions. Times were tough, and my bank shut off my credit. So uh, I had to get all my players together, all my staff, and said, we've got to shut her down. And I was miserable, let me tell you. I was crying, and I was on the 10th floor of the Travel Inn in Salt Lake City, Utah. And my lawyer is a graduate of this fine institution, a guy named Bob Nagel. And I said, Bob, I'm so heartbroken, I'm going to jump out the window. He said, Bill, the luck you're having, you're going to live. <laughs> <laughs> now, the reason I tell you the story is I had temporarily stiffed citizens in Salt Lake City for $750,000 for season tickets that they'd been paid for and no more ball games and we owed creditors and that bothered the hell out of me. About six years later I went I made a couple deals I went back to Salt Lake City and I paid every creditor with interest of 8% since the date I shut them down and boy did I feel good about that. I really felt good. Now the moral of that story is today some 18 years later, I meet people in all over the country that say, aren't you the guy that paid off the season ticket holders in Salt Lake City? And I say, yes, that's me. Now, what I'm saying to you is I did not think that was such a big deal at the time. I just didn't want to have to live with myself. What I'm telling you as future lawyers and business people is that's a case of examples of ethics and integrity that come back to you that you never dreamed would come back to you. It sure isn't the reason I went over there. I went over there because I had to look in the mirror in the morning when I shaved. Don't get the impression that I'm an angel. I'm far from it. And Bill wasn't joking. Here he is with refreshing honesty about his flaws. You know, uh, 
in my world of business, you got to get along with people. You got to have a sense of humor. You got to be able to make fun of yourself. So let me take three minutes and say to you that while the introductions are nice that Steve gives me, we've all got skeletons in our closets. I'm sure all of you are perfect. But when I finish, you'll know that I'm the kind of a guy that lays it on the line. So let me tell you a few things that it does not say on my resume. Uh, but it'll tell you one thing about me, I'm honest. Uh, I have a long-term relationship with the Colorado Motor Vehicle Department and the uh, Colorado State Highway Patrol and the same in California where I spent a lot of time. Uh, I lost a governor's race in the state of Colorado. Uh, I lost five million dollars in the professional sports business. I have been married and divorced four times. Uh, I lost $500,000 on a Ferris wheel for cars, <laughs> which I thought was the greatest invention of all time. You drove the car on this thing and it rotated this way and it saved ground space was a hell of a deal. I thought. I met guys that said, I've never made a bad deal in my life. Well, let me tell you something, folks. When somebody says that, they've never been in many deals. Because uh, those of us who are in and out of speculated deals all the time, we've lost a bundle. Uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a graduate of the Betty Ford Center in uh, Rancho Morales, California. Uh, I'm at a drink uh, a year April the 2nd. Uh, I've made and lost several fortunes. Uh, but I got to tell you, I've had a ball. My brother went to Harvard, incidentally, and I'm not bragging about that. I have virtually no education, but when people compare myself with my brother, I tell them my brother went to Yale and I went to jail. <laughs> the reason I do is because I have been in jail four times, and I was picked up for drunken driving on four different occasions in California. And it was at that time that I made up my mind that I had too many things left in my lifetime to let alcohol get the best of me. Here's John Seaman. I can't tell you how many times I heard him either in public statements or in letters or in conversation with people say, my primary goal is I want to go to heaven. Well, you don't think of Bill as a religious person. I've never thought of Bill as a religious person. But there's, a, there's an instinct there that defined Bill as a very unique person to be so conscious at all times of that being his primary goal. When you put your life in perspective, you realize how little time there is to make something truly significant out of your life. To some people, this might mean acquiring a lot of possessions to others, building a business or owning property. And there are those whose lives wouldn't be fulfilled unless they achieve fame and fortune. Happens to be my personal belief that what you live, that others can benefit by, and what you're able to teach the younger generation, if you leave your life that way, you leave this world with a clear conscience 
and you might even have a smile on your face. And great job, as always, to Alex, and a very special thanks to the Daniels Fund for providing so much of the source material. What a life lived. Integrity, we hear a lot about. We hear about intuition, free enterprise. And by the way, integrity is is not just a business proposal. It's a way of life. And in the end, if you're doing it because you think you'll get something back, it's a real bad reason to do it. And Bill understood that from an early age, making sure that that life insurance policy got paid out, making sure those ticket holders, well, that they got paid too. Also, the honesty of this guy sharing what he shared with an audience over a three-minute period, failed marriages, struggles with alcohol, it just makes him that much more real and that, that much more of a powerful story, not glossing over the realities of life and the failures of life. But in the end, wanting to get to heaven is his primary goal, and that distinguishes him from so many people that run businesses. More, I wish, had that stated claim. Bill Daniels' story, the father of cable television, a classic American story, if ever there was one, here on Our American Story.